0: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI,
1: its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide.
2: Sounds of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. Hello there. My name's Shane Burke, and you're listening to Tech Talk on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today, we're going to kind of change up the format of the show. Uh, Instead of the traditional interview, we're going to bring you a story. And this is the story of Sammy Kamkar. He's the author of The MySpace Worm. You may have heard of him, and you may have heard of The MySpace Worm. A worm is a self-replicating virus that does not alter files, but resides in active memory and duplicates itself. And Sammy's worm did just that, very successfully, I might add. Here's Sammy telling us how he came up with the idea for the worm.
1: Uh, there was no idea for it at all. Uh, I had MySpace for probably about a week at that point, and I was really just playing around. You know, All my friends had one, my girlfriend had one. I thought, all right, I'll finally get this account, set it up. So I started, uh, I started setting it up, and checking it out, you know, adding old friends. And I quickly saw there were a lot of limitations to the website. You can only do so much with your profile page. So I thought it would be neat to sort of extend that functionality as much as I could. So I started looking into it further, you know, at a security level. And I found I could do some some other things, like I could extend the length of my headline or add more pictures and the restrictions allowed, just little things like that. So I'd say after about... Uh, after playing around each day after work, I'd come home and spend maybe an hour on it, and I'd just play around and see what else I could do. Um, pretty quickly, I, I had a goal, and, and my goal ended up being, um, you know, you can have a relationship status set, and that could be single, divorce, in a relationship, married, so on and so forth. The problem is that it's within a drop-down, so you can only select what they provide. And on the back end, there are only IDs. It's not just text that you can change, uh, even if you modified the source, So I thought, well, it would be really cool if I could change that from in a relationship to in a hot relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, just a subtle change to my page. Most people wouldn't notice. The people who would notice would probably just appreciate the, uh, you know, the subtlety there. So I started looking into it, and pretty quickly I realized that I could use JavaScript to modify the page. Um, It took a little work to actually get JavaScript to execute. But once I I realized that and figured out how to do that, I realized you can actually do pretty much anything to the page or to the client's browser at that point. So first it was just little changes, right? I I learned that I could, you know, adjust that relationship status. I could use JavaScript. Uh, The JavaScript would then read in the HTML, modify a certain portion, and then rewrite it or or basically update it on the fly. Then I I, uh, figured out I could probably start doing other things with the client's browser. At the time... uh, Google Maps was starting to gain uh, gain a lot of traction. Everyone kept hearing about uh, Ajax, right? That's Mm -hmm. sort of Google Maps is the biggest, was at the time, you know, a big implementation of Ajax and one of the first well-known implementations of Ajax. I thought, well, time to learn a new technology. So let's see if I can integrate this Ajax thing in at all. So I started reading documentation on that, and I found out what Ajax basically is, is It allows your browser to do updates to a page without ever changing your URL or the page you're on. So within the page, you can execute other things. So I found out and realized that, well, with this JavaScript that I'm able to execute, I can actually make their browser do other things. So I could make it send a request to the MySpace domain and have it, for example, add me as a friend, or I could have it update, uh, you know, create a comment, uh, almost virtually anything at that point. You know, after playing around for a few days, I found that you know I could do all these updates, and I thought, all right, well, what would be funny? It'd be funny if someone came to my page, and if they weren't already my friend, they would add me as a friend. I didn't have that many visitors view my page, so it wasn't a big deal. You know, no one would get hurt out of it, so I thought that'd be pretty funny. So I implemented that, and uh, that was great. You know, it added a few people, and just to show off to my friends, I showed them. Then I thought, all right, well, there are these sections where you can say what you like your favorite books, your favorite movies, your favorite music. There's a section that wasn't often used called your hero section. And, you know, every once in a while someone would put something in there. And I realized, well, actually I can add text there as well. So in there, you know, your hero section might say, well, you know, my mom, my dad, and my grandma. And I would just append, but most of all, Sammy is my hero. So if you visit my profile my code would send an Ajax request to MySpace from your client with your cookies, and would say, hey, I want to update my own profile. I want to leave everything that's there. You know, my mom, my dad, my grandma, they're still my heroes, but most of all, Sammy's my hero. And uh, I thought that was pretty funny. So I had these on my profile, but, again, I don't get many. Uh, I had just started the profile, so I didn't get many visitors. So I thought, well, how can I just uh, make this grow a little bit faster? Well, if I can... Put this code on my page, which updates their page, can't I actually also put the code in the update? So essentially, someone visits my profile, and not only does it add me as a friend, add me as a hero, but then it adds the code to their profile. That way, when someone visits their page, it adds, wh- whomever views their page then adds me as a friend, adds me as a hero, and replicates the code.
2: On this show, we want to arm you with knowledge so you can build safer web applications and protect yourself from threats like worms. So here's exactly what Sammy had to do to build his worm. Don't worry, MySpace has already fixed these vulnerabilities, but be sure to use this knowledge to make sure that your websites are safe from cross-site scripting vulnerabilities.
1: So I'd say the biggest thing was getting JavaScript to execute on the page. Um, that, you know, that's the biggest issue today with cross-site scripting. You know, if, if someone's able to get JavaScript to execute, they could potentially hijack uh, the client's browser, at least on that domain. <clears throat> and... So, you know, at first I used the normal attempts to add JavaScript to a page. Um, because it's MySpace, you can modify your profile. So I thought, all right, I'll just modify my profile and put something like a script tag within my profile. Well, they obviously ran into that before, so they've parsed that out. They parse things like uh, the script tag out. They've parsed uh, other methods that would normally execute JavaScript, like uh, on load or you know on mouse over, just uh, JavaScript event handlers like that. So. I was playing around, and I definitely didn't know all the, all the real methods to execute JavaScript, but I thought I would uh, just look around some more. And I know that you can sometimes execute JavaScript in a URL. So I thought, well, maybe what I can do is MySpace allows divs, where you can basically style your web page. So what if I add a style, and then I set a background on it, and with a background, you can have a URL. So basically, background of a web page. And instead of a URL, I'll just execute JavaScript there. So uh, I found out that within a CSS background tag, you can actually execute JavaScript on some browsers, and I believe it only affected Internet Explorer and Safari at the time. Um, at one point, I wrote a, a little fuzzer. So the problem at that point is, although I found out how I could use JavaScript within tags that MySpace allowed, because they blocked so many other tags, but the div tag was allowed, that was great. However, I then quickly realized, well, they blocked the word JavaScript out. And part of this whole thing is I need the word JavaScript. I thought, well, maybe I could break up the word JavaScript somehow. You know, if they're stripping it out, what if I do something like a Java, JavaScript script? You know, maybe it'll remove the first JavaScript, and then the words Java and script will combine into the new word JavaScript. But instead, I found out they're replacing JavaScript with the two dots. So instead, you'd end up with, like, Java dot dot script. So that wouldn't work. So I thought, all right, well, what can I put in between the words that may do something? So I just wrote a simple fuzzer. All it did was create a web page, and using every decimal character, um, or every ASCII character but decimal 0 through 255, it would split the word up. So Java A script, Java B script, Java C script. Uh, Went into all the numbers, went into all of the special characters that you have. I found there were actually three methods that you could use to split the word up that Internet Explorer and I think other browsers would still respect it as JavaScript. So while the browser respected it, MySpace's filters did not. They ignored it. They they had no idea that that was JavaScript that would normally be executed on a browser. So in the end, I actually used Java New Line Script, where I just split up the two words on two separate lines. Uh, And that allowed me to execute JavaScript through their filters. You know, they were blocking a lot of other things as well. Um, because I was using AJAX, one of the one of the common uh, pieces of that are HTML, uh, XML, HTTP requests, and they were blocking certain words that are used there. So in those scenarios, what I would have to do is sort of evaluate two strings and then concatenate them in JavaScript um, using an eval and just sort of little thing- nuances like that that were sort of just little roadblocks that you had to get around, and uh, I ended up documenting, I think, a list of the major ones. Um, at one point, you know, there was an actual size limit to what you can post, so being able to concatenate the entire thing and actually uh, minimize it enough. Uh, at that point, I actually wrote a JavaScript minimizer to minimize everything. Um, I even created a little API to actually build the entire thing for me. Um, uh, another problem was I was I wasn't able to use quotes as much, uh, just due to the way I was putting everything within divs, Uh, it already basically used up quotes, single and double, so escaping quotes was kind of a pain to do all the code that I need to do. So again, I wrote this program that would take all my code, replace the quotes with uh, basically uh, the decimal version of quotes, convert it within an eval, and then execute it all. And I think after about a week, I had sort of everything, and, and then it just dawned on me, well, I can also just replicate this code as well.
2: Did you catch what you could have done to protect your website? Hopefully. You see, the vector Sammy's worm used to execute its JavaScript was the div tag. Although MySpace had many filters Sammy had to get around, its major flaw was that it allowed users to customize their profiles with code in the first place. If MySpace had encoded all user input so that even if code was uploaded, it could not be executed, The worm would never have been possible. Here's what happened after the worm was released.
1: So I expected probably after a month or so, I expected a a hundred or two hundred friends when I launched it around midnight. I went to sleep and I woke up at 8 a.m. and at that point I looked and I had about 200 friends. That's when I freaked out. Um, So overnight, overnight it uh, went to 200. Added 200. an hour later, it was another 200, so I was at 400 at that point. Uh, pretty quickly, I realized it was about doubling each hour. I'd say right when I woke up, I was worried, you know, when I saw 200, that was just a number I was not expecting. Um, so I freaked out immediately, and I thought, all right, what do I do? What do I do? Well, I could write another worm that goes and spreads itself, and then deletes this worm. But then I thought, mm, it's probably not a good idea, let's just stick to one. Uh, so at that point, I anonymously emailed MySpace and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm just some random person on MySpace. Love the service, and it seems like someone keeps adding me on MySpace even though I don't authorize it. Uh, it looks like they have some code that's running that's doing it. I think this is how it work. works. Detailed explanation of all the code and exactly how to stop it. So I kind of gave him the uh, you know the keys to hopefully stopping it as quickly as possible, because I had no intention for it to spread. You know." As virally as it did, and uh, I didn't get any response, and uh, basically continued to spread for a while. At that point, as well, what I decided to do was delete my account. Although that wouldn't essentially, that would not necessarily prevent the worm from spreading, because once it's out, it's out. Uh, at least it would not add me as a friend. So I thought, all right, I'll go ahead and delete the account. So I went to MySpace and said, all right, delete my account, and said, are you sure? You want to delete your account? You're going to lose all of your friends. I said, that's okay. <laughs> delete my account. And it said, are you absolutely sure you cannot you know, undo this action? I said, yes, please do this. It said, all right, we will delete your account within 24 hours. And I said, oh, no, 24 hours. I, I really had nothing to do at that point. My hands were slightly tied behind my back, yeah. which was my own doing. Uh, the, uh, the worm kept spreading, right? It was at 200 in the morning, and, and an hour later it spread, and it was 400. You know, an hour later is close to 1,000. And uh, throughout the day, it just kept spreading and spreading. And, uh, you know, obviously it has to plateau at some point because each person that's getting effect- infected is a logged-in individual user. You know, someone can't get infected multiple times. Uh, you can't add me multiple times. And and the, the worm was built so that it wouldn't actually uh, spread further than it needed to, so it wouldn't try to re-add, your, re-add if it was already there or, or, you know, re-alter the profile, things like that. It was... Built to be somewhat efficient, and I think too efficient. Um, So it spread throughout the day, you know, thousands. You know, started going into the thousands. Then uh, later, the ten thousands. uh, Pretty soon around, I think probably around lunchtime or so, it hit 100,000 people. um, Actually, probably a couple hours in the afternoon. You know, at that point, I was just expecting it needs to plateau. There needs to be, I had no idea how big MySpace was or how active it was. Um, another thing to note is that it can't affect people who aren't online. It just can't spread to someone unless they're logged in and actually visiting a profile of someone who's infected. So, at about a hundred thousand, I was just in complete disbelief. You know, I wouldn't think it was that serious until it, you know, had hit a hundred thousand people, and I thought, all right, well, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people. Uh, also, just before this occurred. Fox had bought MySpace for about $580 million. I'm thinking, all right, you know, now they have a pretty big legal team and, and a pretty big war chest if they ever wanted to do something. Um, so it was near near the end of the work day, so I just kept working. I thought, alright, I'm not gonna look at this anymore. I'm just gonna try to focus, you know, I was ghost white, just afraid, I had no idea what would happen at all. And honestly I think that's more of a fear than knowing what would happen. Uh, I think everyone rests a little easier if they know what's gonna happen to them, even if it's something bad. Uh, you know if, you're, if you know you're going to go to jail all right you just you set your you set your mind for that but i just had no idea what could happen so i kept working and uh i figured you know this is potentially the the uh, last time i'll i'll have some freedom you know you, who knows what will happen so after i finished up work i thought all right i'll just go and enjoy whatever freedom i have left and you know uh eat at my favorite place So i went to Chipotle and got a burrito
2: sarah was scared really scared He thought for sure he'd go to jail, but days went by, weeks went by, eventually months, and he never heard anything from MySpace or the police. Until one day, Sammy continues his story here.
1: What basically happened is I didn't hear from anyone for a long time. It was actually about six months before I heard anything. Um, I'd say, you know, a couple weeks went by and nothing had happened. I thought I was basically in the clear. Six months later, I, I wake up one morning and... You know, I'm going off to work, and uh, I start walking downstairs to my car, and I approach my car, and I see two guys standing next to it, thinking, oh, no, I'm either getting carjacked or this MySpace thing is coming back to haunt me. And I I walk up to them like, Sammy? Like, what? Like, Sammy? So I say, yeah. And then I look behind me, and a couple other people just sort of come behind me, and, and they all surround me and then they all show me badges uh, all from different departments LAPD uh, L- LA district attorney electronics crimes task force which is a subdivision of the secret service uh some some different people and I'm thinking okay uh and that's you know my my heart just sunk into my stomach i was very scared uh, again i don't know what's going to happen here so um i'm talking to them at this point and and you actually get calm, and you calm yourself after a few minutes of talking to them. You know, nothing, nothing's crazy going on. They're not, uh, they're not attacking me with guns or anything like that, and they're not, uh, you know, pushing me around. Nothing dangerous like that. They're just talking. I say, and they end up saying, you know what? We have a search warrant for your, for your house. And I say, oh, okay. And I knew nothing about search warrants, or I knew nothing about the law. At the time, so I'm thinking, well, you know, I watch 24, and on there, they always say, well, show me the search warrant. I thought, all right, you know, I'll, I'll try that, see if it works. So you guys got to show me the search warrant to search, right? I wasn't really sure at the time. So they said, yeah, you're right. Uh, we'll go ahead and show, show that to you when we go upstairs. I'm like, all right, that sounds fair. So we talked for probably about half an hour. And I'm thinking, all right, guys, I mean, you know, this is this is really nice. And we can grab coffee later. Do you want to do this search? They say, oh, we're already doing it. I said, what? But you guys are all down here. So we start going upstairs, up the elevator, and then walking towards my apartment. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend and my roommate are both standing outside of the apartment. You know, my girlfriend's crying and my roommate's just pissed, as as could be. And uh, I walk inside and there are 15 agents just going through my entire place, going through everything. Um, I look at the search warrant and, you know, there it is. I've never mentioned anything. I never specified MySpace. They never said anything, but I, I figured it out. So I read through the warrant and that's when it specified, all right, MySpace.com, they... They can search for anything that has to do with uh, MySpace or has to do with computers. They basically took anything with a chip in it. So they took my computer, my laptop, CDs, DVDs, uh, my iPod, my cell phone, pretty much anything that could store data. I was talking to them and just having casual conversation at this point. You know, not much else I could do. And they're saying, yeah, you know, we're actually a a little pissed off. We had to follow you for two weeks. I said, okay, (laughs) why would you follow me? Like, well, you know, we we have to basically figure out what your schedule is, so... You know, when we actually execute this this search, we know when to find you, where to find you. Make sure uh, most people have a very consistent schedule over a period of weeks. So that's what we did. But uh, the problem was you work so late. You know, sometimes you wouldn't leave the office till 9 p.m. So we're there just waiting in the car, you know, from 9 a.m. And when you, when you arrive, you go off for lunch and you come back and there you are just waiting. You know, my girlfriend was pissed. I said, well, good. <laughs> They had uh, some, you know, very rough evidence that I would call my blog post sort of describing the entire thing. Um, you know, because I had no malicious intent, I thought the best thing to do would would sort of show exactly what had happened. Uh, I think people would get a kick out of it and, and understand, you know, this meant as a prank. A prank gone horribly wrong, but a prank nonetheless. And that, you know, there's no intention to do anything, uh, anything harmful to MySpace or its users. And I think all the users got that. Uh, no idea what MySpace thought of it, and I uh, quickly found out what the government thought of it.
2: And the government wasn't happy if it wasn't already clear. Sammy now describes his journey through the justice system.
1: That day I went and I started searching for a lawyer, and uh, talked to a lawyer and he started communicating with the DA and it was, six, it was probably six months before we ever went to court and before anything happened there. I ended up, you know, ended up working with the DA, you know, during those six months, really ended up working with the DA on a plea, on a plea agreement that uh, sort of really reduced everything they were trying to do. You know, again, you could tell they were just trying to make an example. Um, Like, there's no malicious intent and everyone knew that. That was extremely obvious. Uh, The the case had nothing, it wasn't from MySpace. You know, it wasn't MySpace coming and saying, hey, you caused all this damage. Which I think would be entirely fair. Say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, whatever I did, I'll repay. But it wasn't that at all. It was actually the government that was coming after me and saying, you know, you hacked and that's bad, which I agree with. There were a few charges, um, all in California uh, Penal Code 502c, and I believe 502c8 was the big one. And what they were try- what they were saying is, thing- the thing with the computer code is that it's so generalized and that makes sense. They basically want to use it when they can, so it's extremely vague and can be applied pretty much anywhere. In fact, I think most of those laws are one sentence long. And in this example, I believe it was introducing a com- computer contaminant into a network. I believe that's the entire, you know, letter of the law, and, and that was it. I ended up with just a misdemeanor on my record. Uh, I ended up having 720 hours of Caltrans service, or made some made some good friends, you know, cleaning up the highways. Um, it was actually really interesting. You know, It just changed my life a lot in, in that regard. I could not touch computers for three years, and I had uh, some amount of restitution.
2: Three years without a computer. I wanted to ask Sammy what that was like.
1: It was awesome, actually. It was probably great. I mean, you're talking to a guy who was sitting behind the computer every day, you know, every night, uh, just nerdy as all could be, and now you're forced to go into this thing they call the world, you know. Uh, some of you guys may, may think it's second life. No, it's actually the real life. Uh, and, you know, going out and, you know, exploring and just doing other things. Uh, started being more more active, you know, picked up surfing, started working out, just started going out. Uh, I was 21 at that point. You know, that's how long it all took to actually um, get basically executed.
2: Next I asked Sammy whether he felt the prosecutors were trying to make an example of him.
1: Uh, I, think, I think that i don't know who did i don't know who wanted to make an example of me but i think that's that's exactly what they wanted to do yeah whomever that was i would be entirely comfortable and you know have have no uh not would never be mad or or, or feel hurt in any way if myspace said hey you know you cause all this damage and you need to you know uh fess up and, and pay for it or or do something to right this wrong that i completely agree with and you know that's uh I had, Again, I had no intention of doing anything to them. Um, I don't think it's reasonable for the government to come after me and say, hey, you know, you did something that's wrong, period. Um, you know, did I do something wrong? The, the answer is yes. Uh, I think I need, to, I need to put more thought into it to, to say whether it's fair or not. But I think the initial punishment they were actually trying to put on me was not fair. Um, we definitely got it down to a much more reasonable I mean initially it was just unreasonable amounts of restitution you know just something I would never be able to afford uh lifetime without you know being able to touch a computer or cell phone and I think they were trying to go for you know some sort of prison time so it was it was pretty rough in the beginning
2: Moving away from his experience following the MySpace worm I wanted to ask Sammy how he contributed to knowledge in the security community by writing the worm
1: uh, you know, I think uh, I wrote a pretty technical description of how it worked. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of security professionals have been saying before the worm came out was, you know, people, there, there are these exploits that are, are potentially really dangerous. You know, no one really understood the depth of, of what it could do or how bad it could be. And I think this worm demonstrated exactly how bad XSS, uh, XSS was, you know, combined with other things like Ajax and uh, these, these other attacks. And I think at that point, that was a a big, you know, rung rung a big bell in the security industry. And, you know, the the top security guys like, you know, Jeremiah Grossman and uh, Robert Hansen, who have been saying, you know, this is an issue. Uh, People finally were like, oh, you're right, (laughs) this is an issue.
2: Next, I wanted to know how common cross-site scripting attacks are. Uh,
1: They're extremely common. Uh, You know, most people don't understand them, don't understand why it's a bad thing or, or how it can really affect people so uh, a lot of sites don't really take any measures to protect against it uh, and you know there are sites dedicated to actually finding and, and posting where you know where these uh, XSS vulnerabilities are and then people are just using them to, you know for their own advantage.
2: Next I asked Sammy whether he felt social networking sites were particularly susceptible to cross-site scripting attacks.
1: Social, you know, I'd say the worms are a bit easier to do on social networking sites because there's somewhere where you can actually consistently keep your code if you manage uh, to be able to upload it, you know, into your profile Um, because those profiles allow that. That makes it easier. There are just so many many more places you can put data versus other sites like a bank, you know. Maybe on a bank you might be able to update something like your name or some account information, but... uh, in those scenarios you have less, less to work, less room to work with, which doesn't necessarily say it's not possible, it's just more difficult.
2: Then I asked Sammy to explain how people can protect themselves from cross-site scripting attacks.
1: Well, there's different software out there, uh, some sort of intrusion detection systems to prevent it or, or stop it in its tracks. Uh, writing good code is, is always a way to just prevent it, you know, at the source. Um, actually, after the worm, someone uh, uh, Arshan uh, created something called the anti sami Project, and that's actually a, a basically an advanced filtration system that prevents you know XSS in any way it can in any way can detect it.
2: Now, I wanted to know whether SAMI felt the blame for cross-site scripting attacks rests on developers.
1: It's it, that's always a tough call because you don't necessarily want to uh, you know there, there are different thought, thoughts out there and different camps of thought. Some people say, "Well, the developers should be doing it." Other people say, "Well, there should be, you know, a security group that that does it, so the developers can just focus on developing." Um, others say it should just be prevented. You know, in whatever framework you use, or uh, you know, system or API, something should just prevent it. Period.
2: Then I asked Sammy to explain what he could have done if he had more malicious intentions.
1: Oh, well, sure. I mean, I, I could have done a lot in there. All I had to do is change the payload from updating to Sammy's my hero to. You know just a, a massive botnet to attack you know whatever website, and the great you know in that scenario I could actually make it really subtle. People might wouldn't even know that they would be getting uh, getting infected, right There could be code that's on their profile that would uh, you know do whatever I say, whatever I said from a remote server that I could update at any time, and then I could really control millions of computers. Um, without everyone ever knowing because it had nothing to do with my, if I didn't have it add me as a friend or add me as a hero, anything like that.
2: Finally, I asked Sammy if we would write the MySpace worm again, knowing what he knows now.
1: To probably prevent the case and everything like that? No, no, I wouldn't. But uh, it would be interesting to see, you know, how security would be different in that specific realm without it, you know. And I'm wondering what would be the first XSS worm, and would it be malicious, would it be a lot worse, who knows.
2: And that concludes my interview with Sammy. Many thanks to him. Uh, he drove all the way out here from L.A., and I really appreciate it. I think it made a very interesting show. Um, he definitely had a great story. Uh, next, Kumar will join me again. Ravin Kumar uh, from the New University will be discussing the case of the stolen slash lost iPod uh, that was picked up by Gizmodo. Uh, this is kind of an old story, but we're replaying this interview because we didn't have a chance to play it the week uh, it made news because of uh, uh, we were a little short on time. So, come back right after the break and listen to my interview with Kumar. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Eat
1: some breakfast. Oh yeah. Mm, yeah.
0: Feels good in the
1: morning. Ooh. In the morning Every morning Mmm yeah Ooh. Eat a banana Ooh. Put it in your cereal
0: Mmm
1: yeah
0: Ooh I got eggs on my face
2: Ooh. It's gonna taste good Make you act like you should Oh yeah <laughs> Ooh. What you doing to me breakfast? Eat some breakfast.
0: Make my tummy feel warm. According to a survey conducted at UC Irvine last fall, over 98% of UCI students think that cigarettes are harmful. Yet nearly 20% of students surveyed reported that they currently smoke. Smoke Smoke-free policies can help reduce this statistic. During the past year, START... The Student Task Force Advocating Reducing Tobacco at UCI has been working with the Department of Student Affairs, Associated Graduate Students, Staff Assembly, and the Community Alliance Network. You can help create change in tobacco policy at UCI. For more information, contact the Health Education Center at 949-UCI-WELL. For free help to quit smoking, contact 866-NEW-LUNG. Made possible by the County of Orange Healthcare Agency Tobacco Use Prevention Program through funds received from the National Tobacco Settlement. Lefty Lucy, righty-tighty. Okay, here's the thing about yellow snow. Now I know my ABCs. Next time,
2: won't you sing?
1: Learn how to drive,
2: you moron! Remember, you're always teaching. Teach carefully. React with rage, and kids will learn it's okay to do the same. Keep your cool and kids will do likewise. For advice, visit actagainstviolence.org. Brought to you by MetLife Foundation, National Association for the Education of Young Children, and the Ad Council. All right, and joining me is Kumar, once again, from The New You. He wrote an article called Internet Neutrality Sparks Concern. In last week's New You, I'm Shane Burke, by the way. This is Tech Talk on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. Now we're, we're getting into this whole Gizmodo iPod, the, the next generation iPod uh, uh, situation here. Um, so basically what happened is uh, a, a gentleman that works for Apple had the iPhone prototype in his, uh, presumably his pocket. He, he went to a bar. It got lost. Someone picked it up, sold to Gizmodo for $5,000, and then Gizmodo started uh, taking it apart, writing blogs about it, um, posted a whole bunch of pictures and things like that. And then uh, recently, it's finally been returned to Apple. As far as we know, what Gizmodo said is that it, um, they uh, received a letter from Apple. They've got the letter up on the website saying, we believe you have something of ours. Um, could you please return it? And as far as I know, that they did return it. Um, so this has a lot of uh, intellectual property uh, written all yeah. over it, man. Oh, uh, characteristics to
0: it. Well, part of the issue here is, is there is law in which journalists do not have to give up their sources. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's basically like this sort of uh, you know protection thing. It's like, look, if somebody spoke to me, I don't have to tell you who he was. You know, I want to protect my sources and and this includes i think to a certain extent whether we the materials we get even if they're leaked so if i manage to get my hands on some top secret military document i don't have to say who got it or how i got it it's just the fact that i got it um i think the problem here where it comes in or, or at least in part from what i understand is the fact that they paid $5000 for exactly. it exactly yeah that's that's really like the big issue yeah and from what like that's not uncommon you know Journalist publications and news, are, we, we'll, we'll put up money to get our stuff. It happens. It's not a big deal. I think the problem here is they happened to have stolen from Apple. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is the same Apple where I think it will, uh, those two journalists were outside of a Foxconn facility that I think made Apple parts. They might have been making Microsoft parts. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was Apple. And they got the crap beaten out of them by security guards. Uh-huh. And and, and it's well-known. Apple is ridiculously tight-lipped yeah, when it is. comes to their stuff. and. Yeah, there, there's some horror stories out there with this stuff. Um, but I think one of the issues here is just, like, they're they're literally taking Gizmodo to town because they bought this prototype iPhone, and I think what they're trying to charge is, like, he bought stolen property. Yeah. But, but it wasn't... here. Here's, here's the way I look at it. One, it's not stolen. It was lost. Yeah. It was lost, and then that guy found it, and then he sold it. That might be an issue, the fact that he found it, he knew who it belonged to, and then he sold it anyways. That might be an issue. Yeah. Um... And certainly that's an arguable case. And Apple has a right to protect its intellectual property. Absolutely. But I think this could end up as a PR disaster for them. For Apple? Yeah. Well, not a disaster. I think for some reason Apple seems to be pretty impervious to that kind of stuff. Yeah, but why do you say it could be a PR disaster? Because of the manner in which they took Gizmodo down. I mean, Gizmodo is a pretty big site. And a lot of these sites, you know, they're very, very friendly of Apple products. Mm-hmm. You know, they go out there and they usually give pretty impartial reviews of this stuff, despite all the fanboyism. And you know when and and, and you know these guys in general, all Ars Technica, On and all these guys, they're rallying around Gizmodo and they're like, "What the hell are you guys doing?" You know, you know, yeah, you know, we grabbed your leaked product. We do this all the time. Why are you getting angry about it? You just raided one of our uh our developers' homes, and apparently. It, I might be wrong about this I think it was on Daily Tech perhaps I think Apple's a part Of the squad That particular squad That's for the uh, Monitoring of Like you know Lost and stolen property Or something like that So they're like This is obviously mo- Politically motivated Or you know This is obviously Being motivated mm-hmm. In some way To the point at least Where this guy's house Got broken into All of his stuff Got grabbed
2: One of these tech One authors. of the I can't remember his name But everything got
0: gra- <clears throat> he, They took all of his stuff All of his computers hmm. You know, all of his stuff. Why do you need to take his computers to find out whether he bought a friggin' iPhone? We know they bought an iPhone. They've said they bought an iPhone, so why are they doing this? Um, I I wish I knew more about this, to be honest. Me too. And
2: one of the problems is this could be a case. Gizmodo's saying, of course, that they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't know the phone was stolen, so when they paid $5,000, it wasn't... um, um, Anything uh, that was out of the ordinary, I guess. I think like they actually saying.
0: offered to send it back to the particular developer. Like, they called him and was like, we, we think we have something that belongs to you.
2: Oh, Apple did? or No, no, no.
0: The- Gizmodo. Oh, yeah. I think contact tried to contact that particular programmer. I
2: think they tried to contact Apple as well.
0: Yeah. At least that's what they said. I- I think eventually they got through to him, and they're like, yo, dude, we think we got something of yours? And then he's like, oh, I'll get back to you. And then they got the letter from Apple. Yeah. I I, I think the transcript, once again, I think the transcript was posted on Daily Tech. It's probably on Gizmodo's site as well. Yeah. And but I, they did try. They did try to let this guy know, hey, we, we got your phone, dude.
2: And and one of the things is, um, I guess Gizmodo is saying that um, they're um, they've talked to their lawyers, and... There's nothing under California law that they can be um, pursued under because I guess, like you were saying, it, it's considered lost property. And well, they the, didn't even know it. it's exactly be a protected source. The person that that um, found it has three years to return it or something, and to the to the rightful owner. So I guess um, you know, there's not much more about this on gizmodo 's website but but um, that 's kind of where they stand yeah. they 're basically maintaining that they haven 't really done anything wrong, although you know they did take the thing apart they 've got i 've got a list of some of the stories they 've got um, all the all the details about the next iPhone, including a dissection, so they actually took this phone apart yeah
0: they tore that thing to they 've
2: got how Apple conceals prototype iPhone, so these are all things that um, could be considered proprietary information, couldn't yeah, they?
0: Yeah, they like that's that's where I think Apple, if anywhere, has a legal precedent to do anything. Leaks of intellectual property like this is where Apple can be like, look, l- by leaking this, you know, you may not have done anything wrong by buying it, but by leaking it, you've caused us damages to because you know people are going to wait. This is one of the things that are, are like one of the things I've heard. You know, if people know an iPhone four G is coming out. They're not going to buy the three G exactly. And there's yeah. lost sales there. So what Apple might argue are punitive damages against Gizmodo by releasing or by leaking our intellectual property prototype early. You have caused us irreparable financial harm. Yeah, and, and if, if they get hit with punitive damages, was, those are nasty. Those are millions of dollars of damages. Those are the imaginary damages.
2: Yeah. So basically. Gizmodo would cease to exist after that. Because I don't know how much they make, but uh, I mean, h- I- for a website... If, if they're very
0: lucky... In, I mean, they're a journalistic publication. I'm sure they have some sort of libel insurance. Yeah. I don't know how much that policy will be, but nonetheless, it's a frightening thought. Especially considering, basically, it would set the president precedent for if a particular... You know, if any journalist publication got their hands on any piece of technology that hasn't been released yet, if they released it, they would, you know all stand for possibly being sued into oblivion.
2: Um, so now where does Apple go from here? Uh, do they, do you think they have to go, because th- this would also be like um, a, a loss of financial, or well, what's, what's the term, I forget? Um, financial... It would
0: be financial losses.
2: Yeah, financial losses or something, because they may actually have to redesign the phone,
0: right? Well, possibly, I mean that's really up to them. Like, and this is a prototype, mind you, so it means nothing a prototype is a prototype it, it, it's it, they could decide to stick to that design they could decide to make all kinds of different changes to it you know it might come out next week in bright green with like a little antenna sticking out of the top <laughs> we don't know yeah uh so that's really their prerogative it's up to them uh i think really what the issue is here is if they in in the pursuit of this ip if they decide to try to sue these guys into oblivion or try to bring criminal action against them i think they're going to it's going to look really bad, especially because generally speaking, these technical publications usually have this pretty. I mean, they have a really good buddy-buddy relationship with any hardware manufacturer. I mean, you see leaks all the time, and it's like, hey, we've got news of the new uh, three, uh, the new Xbox internals. Uh, read here. We have leaks of this new game that are coming. All the, you're always hearing about this. The, yeah. the, the Tech publications thrive off this. You know, who can get the good hook, and. You know, if you start doing this, oh, well, you know, we don't mind you guys getting, we don't mind you getting hooks on other companies, but don't mess with us, you know, that might cause a pretty serious negative backlash. Yeah, yeah. Because what Apple really has going for them is their brand. I mean, their hardware, arguably, you know, you can go one way or the other. Like with the iPad. iPad's a pretty interesting piece of hardware. I'll I'll be the first to admit that. Like, it's interesting for what it is. Is it the, you know, messianic newcomer in the tablet series? No, I don't think so. There'll be something better in two years or one year or six months. But, you know, that, 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 you know, what is Apple? I think what people are saying, you know, it's funny. There's this Apple ad from the 70s, I think. Where it's like, the, it, it's basically like, look, we're Apple and we're rebelling against the uh, socialist, fascist oh, dictator, the, Microsoft. The, um, 1984, the, one.
2: the, the, 1984.
0: You know, this chick runs down and throws yeah. a hammer through like this thing and like there's a bunch of like soulless Windows zombies. Yeah. And people are like, yeah, well, guess what, Mac? You kind of swapped places there, didn't you? Especially with that the iPhone 3.4 update or 1.3.4, something with a .4. The one where they banned other languages for cross-porting or they won't allow Adobe Flash because they think it's stupid. And <laughs> Yeah. And now a lot of developers are like, you know, Apple, w- we used to be pretty cool with you, but this is getting a little ridiculous. And, you know, it's Apple's prerogative. You know, if they want to decide how their hardware is going to be used, Go for it. But don't expect for your image to you know remain pristine. If, yeah. if you're going to start marketing yourself as an, a phone or a, a, a company where, look, if you're going to buy Apple, you're going to be sticking with Apple. You're going to be using our products, our code, our developing environments. You're going to pay for all of it. Expect for people to portray you like that.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're all out of time. I Thank you for coming in, Kumar. This uh, has been
0: fantastic. Thank it, you so much It for definitely has
2: been. I think uh, Kumar is going to be a regular guest on this show. That would be awesome. Um, because there's always so much tech news that we can talk about. Uh, Once again, you're you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Shane Burke. Um, This is uh, Tech Talk. The show is Tech Talk. And my guest is, well, I guess was, uh, Ravind Ravind. Kumar. (laughs) And uh, he wrote an article in the New University called Internet Neutrality Sparks Concern. So I thank you for listening this week, and I also encourage you to... um, uh, donate to KUCI. All right, without any further ado, next is the blues disease. All right, joining you live in the studio, I'm Shane Burke once again. Um, I just wanted to uh, say thanks to Kumar and to uh, to uh, Sammy one last time. And um, uh, there was something else that I needed to say, but I'm completely blanking on. Oh, yes, I remember. Um, inc- I incorrectly said during... Uh, my introduction to Kumar before the commercial, that um, he was going to talk about the iPod. It was actually the iPhone. I think some of you probably caught on, but I misspoke. So I apologize for that. I do that very frequently. You'll remember I did that also last week with the iPad. I call the iPad an iPod. So I just want to correct myself, and I hope you have a good week and you join us next week. Um, We'll be having an interview with a uh, a gentleman from UCSD talking about... detecting uh, malicious URLs um, only based on the URLs. He, he wrote a very, very interesting algorithm and uh, has a research paper out, and we'll be talking with him. It'll be very interesting interviews, so please join us next week. Same time, 9 a.m., KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and also on the web at KUCI.org.